Hey everybody and welcome back to BRIM, a global community at the intersection of climate innovation and justice. Today is season two, episode four, and we hear from Steve Chu, who is a representative for the UN on behalf of the Buddhist Suchi Foundation. He and I have become great friends over the last year or so, and he is also part of BRIM's new Global Working Group, a small team that's coming together to reimagine our world systems and start to build climate solutions together. Hope everyone enjoys. Thanks so much for being here. Again, I uh, getting hard to keep track of what episode this is, which is kind of fun, but it's going to be an awesome one with Steve Chu. And Steve and I, when did we meet? <laughs> I was trying to remember that. I think it was almost this time last year ish, right before you began traveling, or you did one set of travels and then you came and we met up in New York City. Yeah, I think that's right. Well. Regardless, uh, a relatively new friend, Steve Chu, uh, works with the Buddhist Chi Foundation here in New York. Um, but the two of us have had a chance to, to get to know each other, um, spent some time recently in Egypt together at COP27, which we, <laughs> uh, we can dig much more into. But how are you doing, Steve? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, TL. I think it's such a treat to be able to be in a space with you to reflect in this way and not only just reflect and be in conversation, but to have that conversation be shared with our broader community. I think um, it's moments like this that like really give meaning a deeper meaning to the work that we're already doing. Right. Well said. And yeah, I, I I know we, you know, coming fresh off a, a trip to Egypt, I love the way you put it. Everyone's sort of in a stage of therapy. <laughs> mm. Following yeah. up on that experience, uh, you know, the positives, but also some of the um, the moments that we we wish had been different. Uh, mm. But I'm curious from your perspective, how did you find COP27 in Egypt? Uh, I know you were a part of many different speaking engagements uh, in the different pavilions in the Blue Zone, but at a high level, how did you think it went? And um, you know, curious for your for your thoughts. Yeah, I think there's so much that happened. It it kind of felt like being at COP27 was like drinking out of a waterfall. You know, after so long of like being away from each other, uh, it's almost been a year since Glasgow. Like to be able to come back together with like the whole of the climate community was it's it's a very precious opportunity to gather in that way. Right. And I, I really do think we all are in some sort of therapy in that um, and in need of that therapy in that, like coming to the space and holding the expectations that we held and to like watch everything unfold at COP. Some things felt like victories. Other things felt like deep disappointments. Um, and like is progress in the incremental uh, way 
good enough in this moment when our world is burning? There's so many unanswered questions that I think we all need to process as individuals, as the collective community, and really like move forward with. On a high level, I think this year's COP has been really exciting in that it's the first year that we really see food systems uh, be elevated in the conversation around their impact to climate in such a way, right? Like we had about, I believe, four food systems pavilions, if not five, that were dedicated to focusing on the role and impact of food systems transformation on addressing the climate crisis. And so Siji, along with a collection of partners, put together an entire pavilion called the Food for Climate Pavilion, where over the two weeks at COP, we would host uh, daily dialogues, events, exploring the different ways that by transforming food systems, we would be able to address some of the climate impacts, look at building resilience and look to like addressing the co-benefits of like health and then while like creating more resilience to disasters, what have you. And I think in that framing and of having more conversation around food systems, we can really begin to break down these technical silos that we oftentimes fall into where we're just like, oh, we just want to focus on like climate mitigation and adaptation without necessarily looking at how these other systems and structures may impact mitigation and adaptation, right? And by like dissolving these silos, we can begin to approach a more holistic understanding of how we need to address uh, the climate crisis. And so on that front, I think we've been really excited to be a part of contributing to the forward momentum of where we want to go as a collective community. Very cool. And yeah, food is such a, uh, a complex intersection of different issues. Um, Mm. And it's completely global, right? I mean, it's, it's an issue everyone needs to eat. Um, Right. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people within the Brim community are really focused on food from, from many different angles, but um, I know that you and and the work with with Suchi is very focused there in a lot of ways. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about some of the uh, the speaking engagements you had or the conversations that were had on that in that pavilion? And um, I'd be I'd be curious to to hear if if you have some main takeaways from that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think two pieces, right? Like the first before getting into like the actual speaking engagements that we were able to have um, over the two weeks. I think food is like so deeply interlinked to everything, right? It's like linked to culture. It's linked to our values. It's how we connect with each other. It's how we nourish ourselves. And for a lot of people, it's like our primary way that we interact with the natural world, right? And so we, we found that in COP itself, food was also a contentious issue. Right. Like there were many different people coming with many different perspectives, vested interests uh, within the food sector because it's such a diverse space um, to try to uh, bring forth their understandings of how food needed to be engaged. And in this diversity of understandings, one thing kind of pierced through and cut through, which is that um, we may all come from different understandings of the role that food plays, how we engage with food. But at the end of the day, like it is an integral solution to the climate crisis and more effort, energy and resourcing needs to be invested into this space in order to ensure that like we are creating a better future for everyone. 
And yeah. so with that, um, Siji really spent a large chunk of COP27 being in conversation with different policymakers and uh, civil society networks around the importance of food system transformation. We were able to uh, have an entire conversation on the future of food and where we were highlighted by um, the Future Labs uh, team on the innovative work that Suji has been doing in shaping culture and values and utilizing values as a key transformation piece to have conversation dialogue that leads to uh, community transformation around our relationship with food, right? Because what we really found in the years of our work uh, at CG and the various coalitions that we engaged with at an international level, like the Faith and Food Coalition, was that a large part of our food systems is rooted in key values that may not necessarily be aligned with traditional faith values that we speak of related to interdependence, compassion, respect, and mutual understanding, right? Rather, we find that our modern food systems are really um, grounding their values in short-termism, extraction, and profit as like key ways that they want to uh, build food systems, right? All guised under this like veil of, we want to feed a growing population. We've exceeded 8 billion people. So of course we need to be extracted into the planet, right? Because how else are we going to feed everyone? And like um, this understanding of food systems and how the values that underpin these food systems drive the work forward, I think we were really grateful to be able to kind of showcase how this work of positive faith-based organizations engagement with values transformation can be a beacon of hope in transforming our relationship with food. Um, similarly, we were able to showcase and highlight some of the key work that uh, women of faith in the Middle East, North Africa region have been doing to transform their own food systems and relationship with food itself, right? And a lot of this powerful work that women of faith um, have been doing in the Middle East, North Africa region has not actually been food systems directly, but rather food systems adjacent, right? Working within refugee camps to uh, address gender issues where uh, women are being exploited and being put into um, sexually compromising positions simply to access food. And so by addressing the gender uh, dimension of the food systems issue uh, in refugee camps, we're able to then access food in a more equitable and safe way for women and communities, right? Um, and this, this sort of narrative of how we use faith, and particularly women of faith, to bring forth positive transformation in these communities was something we were also really excited to highlight um, within COP as well. And then finally, coming to like the health side, showcasing some of Tsuji's green hospital work to um, kind of like model an alternative of like, if we consistently say that like the systems we have right now are not it, right? That they're not adhering to the values that we really believe in, what models do do so, we're, we're able to kind of showcase uh, the work that Tsuji has been doing and piloting since 1986, yeah. Awesome, and that's a great seed to plant because I definitely wanna spend some time later in the conversations talking about these these green hospitals because I, to your point, I think they're an amazing case study of how a lot of these intersections come together. Um, mm. And to your point, you know, even in the US, we've been hearing a lot more about these 
these food deserts that have um, gotten some more attention recently where there are pockets of space you know, in specific states across the U.S., but it's also a global concept where there just isn't food. Um, right. And this all also this this relationship with food is it's very different in different parts of the world. Um, you know, I, when I had some time to spend in South America working on a farm, <laughs> you know, that was a very different experience than my experience growing up here in New York. Right. But it, mm-hmm. it kind of helped me reframe my relationship with food. And then I started growing tomatoes in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I talk about those at nauseum, but uh, it's also helped me kind of reframe um, sort of my connection to to the nourishment of my body um, and relationship with the world as well, the natural world in general. So a lot to dig into there, but um, I guess pressing the rewind button a little bit so people can learn a little bit more about you, um, you know, before all your, uh, your fame and glory at, at COP27. <laughs> oh, geez, no way, no way. <laughs> um, curious if you would share a little bit about your experience growing up. And, um, you know, I, I, I've been very lucky to, to learn more about um, your outlook since you were a kid and from growing up, but um, would love to invite you to share a little bit about that, that experience if, if you're open to it. Yeah, I, I'm really happy to. I think the work in me entering the climate space really stemmed from my relationship with Tsuji. And so when I was seven years old, I was introduced to the work of Tsuji Foundation, and that was about 1999. There was this major earthquake that had hit um, Taiwan, and a lot of our um, community here in like the Midwest had family back home. And we were really concerned about how everyone was doing, and we really wanted to like somehow give to organizations that were responding to this disaster and uh, support their work. And one of the first organizations that we found that was on-site delivering aid and care to people who had been impacted by this major earthquake was Tsuji. And so we were like very quickly like wrapped into this world of Tsuji where we're like, oh my God, look at how like caring and compassionate these volunteers are going to the site of disasters and really not just helping provide the material goods that um, these individuals who had been impacted by the earthquake needed, but really uh, providing the emotional and spiritual care that they desperately needed at that moment, right? To know that despite this uh, devastating tragedy that had just wrought uh, their lives, that they would be okay, that there was this community that would take care of them and that would help them back on their feet, right? And so from there, we began to like learn more about Suji how it was rooted in Buddhism and like these ideas of putting the principles and teachings of Buddhism into action. And like, we really resonated with this idea that like faith and uh, religion itself without action is dead. Right. And we need to like really put these values um, into motion in order to really be adherents to a like faith tradition. And so growing up being surrounded by Buddhist culture and uh, we really began to like learn more about Tsuji and build out our own chapter of Tsuji in Columbus, Ohio. And so from there, like growing up from seven years old all the way until I graduated uh, at 
college, I've been like part of Tsuji.、Uh, and in doing that, one of my key things that we would do is respond to disasters all around the Midwest, right? So whether those were floods,、uh, tornadoes,、uh, or just man-made natural disasters like fires, we would、uh, deploy on the weekends to like. Go visit these communities that had been impacted by these disasters, and work hand in hand with them to build resilience, self-sufficiency, help them like get back to where they were before this disaster had impacted them, and then help stitch together this sort of sense of hope in a better future, despite the fact that these disasters oftentimes would like wipe away all of the progress that maybe they had made over like the past twenty years. Right, and so how do we, as like this small grassroots community, really go in there and still inspire hope and a future for these communities? And so that was kind of like the work that like I was doing as a kid. And、yeah. so my relationship with nature was both one of like awe and beauty, right? Like, oh my god, like the natural world is so fantastic. Look at these beautiful trees that I'm constantly surrounded with, and then also like these beautiful rivers and ponds that I grew up by. But also the、uh, sheer like. Horror of like nature as the destroyer of all things that humankind may bring into the world, like it can easily wipe away in an instant. And so to have that appreciation of the impermanence that the natural world、um, had in our lives, and then also a growing concern to see that as I grew older, the frequency and intensity of disasters were increasing in the Midwest, and that sensation of Knowing that something was wrong, but not understanding what that was, was ever present in my life until I learned about climate change and learned about how we as humankind are exacerbating all of these issues, and that it was largely preventable. You know that like we were making these choices out of an in- ill-informed understanding of our relationship with the natural world, and all it really takes is for us to shift our trajectory as humankind and society. Towards a better relationship with the natural world. Very cool, yeah. And I, I love this sort of the juxtaposition of nature, as you said, sort of being the creator, but also the destroyer in a lot、mm. of ways. And、um, you know, our relationship with the earth kind of dictates that,、right. <laughs> um, especially in the long term. But and I guess just just quickly going back to the COP. Twenty-seven context too, especially within the context of disasters.、Um, one of the main focal points of the conversation was around this sort of loss and damages fund. Yeah, right.、Mm. Where conceptually you have the richer nations in the world who have contributed the vast majority of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and therefore the vast majority of the the hurtful effects on the world,、um, creating a fund. To distribute to countries who are in the developing world, quote unquote,、um, or as I've heard and I like better, the global majority, right?、Um, distributing funds to actually help with adaptation efforts,、um, you know, a lot of these disaster relief efforts as well.、Um, mm. And I'm curious your thoughts on sort of how that ended up at the end of COP, especially with within the context of the Suji. Foundation and and the work you're doing, yeah. So I think with loss and damage, it was so interesting to be、um, watching how nations were responding to the conversation. I think if you asked five years ago、uh, if loss and damage and could be on the table at COP, 
it was largely just something that was being pushed by like the small island developing states and a couple from the global majority. But this year has kind of been like a watershed moment for um, the international community to understand that the damages that are being caused by the natural world far exceed anything that um, the countries that are really uh, suffering these damages have the ability to recover from, pay for, and fix, right? And we, we were able to create a loss and damage fund, and there's still a lot of work that needs to go into ironing out those details, but for a large portion of the international community, I think it's a hopeful sign to see that we're heading in the right direction. But at the same time, I do think that within the global majority countries and a lot of those who have been like really hard at work to push the loss and damage conversation this year at COP27, just having a funding, um, just having a fund alone is not enough. Right. And that like it falls short to what is needed to truly address the damages that will come within even the next year alone. Right. And so that sentiment of both the deep hope that is arising from the incrementalism that we see where progress has been made. Right. This is the first year that we see something meaningful come forth in loss and damage beyond the uh, symbolic uh, gestures that were made in Glasgow. Right. But like there's actual work being done this year that is codified in the outcomes of COP27. It's exciting. But is incrementalism in this way enough? And if it isn't, what can we do outside of this structure to ensure that the suffering that is to come will be better addressed? I think is where Tsuji is sitting. Where are we able to, within our own organization, ramp up our ability to rapidly respond to disasters? Are we able to build coalitions and partnerships that allow for us to be in countries that we know are disaster um, or at, are at risk of being impacted by disasters and have the ability to work through partnerships to like kind of build up that capacity? And then are we able to better work with uh, national governments and subnational uh, structures to ensure that um, negligence isn't part of the uh, status quo? but rather uh, proactive resilience and adaptation building is being funded and supported. Great, yeah. And it, it seems like the next step on the loss and damages fund is that there's a, and jump in here where I don't have the full information, but there's a committee that's been formed to basically launch the structure of the strategy or something around that where, the, the concept of the fund now exists, and there's been a committee that will be appointed to kind of lead that charge, um, but there isn't, you know, a, a, a layer of funding that's already been contributed in a, in a meaningful way. So it's, the conversation's been started, and I guess there's a roadmap to, to something substantial happening, um, but to your point, it's kind of, in my mind, my personal opinion, it's kind of like a Band-Aid. Uh, hmm solution on a much larger systemic challenge where right. at the end of the day you know the US and Europe could continue acting exactly as they are within the same structures of capitalism and then you know continue to disperse money into this fund to help developing countries pay for the damages but um the underlying systemic questions aren't really being challenged. 
and the I root issues I haven't been addressed. You, yeah. yeah, I kind of hear you going in that direction, um, mm. but that's that's why we're here, right? So yeah, and I think also like there's there's often conversation on the utility of the UN and those who fall on the more radical side of like um, wanting or not wanting to engage with structures that feel inefficient oftentimes call for the dissolution of the UN, right? Like if it is performative diplomacy, like is um, is that actually more harmful to mm -hmm. progress than if something like this did not exist at all, right? Whereas um, staunch supporters of the UN say like as inefficient and uh, slow as the process may seem within the UN, like this is still the best structure to bring together heads of states and governments to be in conversation and build consensus that humanity has found so far, right? And so I think from Tsuji's side, how we see this engagement, how we see this work is on one part that um, if this is the best structure that we currently have as an international community, then we have a responsibility to be present, to hold our voices there, even if they are not um, heard as much as they should be. Right. There's a lot of conversation around like the shrinking of civil society voices within these structures and spaces that mm -hmm. I think we could launch a whole other conversation into. Right. But if yep. this is the best thing we have, we have a responsibility to be here, to share our voices and to engage with those in power. At the same time, though, we cannot put our hopes in a structure that may not necessarily achieve what it is that we want. And we must first and foremost model the future we want to see on the ground at a grassroots level ourselves to prove to those in power at an international level that the future we want is possible and it is feasible already right now. Awesome. And that that's a great lead into I think the next the next set of questions. And I I loved how you framed it before we started talking today around, you know, in these spaces, it's important to have a combination of you know, critiquing the bad or critiquing the shortfalls and then also practicing positive case studies that other people can learn from. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges that people speak about when they say, you know, okay, you're, you're, you want to challenge the system of capitalism. Great. But what's the alternative, right? I think that's the, the classic pushback uh, for people who want to maintain the status quo in some way. Um, and I think that's the greatest challenge for a lot of people on, um, you know, on the side of social democracy and people who are thinking about different forms um, of setting up our world that are alternative to global capitalism and neoliberalism. Um, but I'm curious, I know one of these is this green hospital structure that you planted the seed for early on. Um, and so I, I'd, I'd be curious if you'd be willing to dive into sort of how you guys have thought about that since the since the end of last century. Um, and then maybe we can even think about, you know, the last few minutes of our conversation beyond that, you know, structured around how we, how we envision an alternative future. Um, mm. And that, that can be an ongoing conversation, but, uh, you know, for those thinking about how to, how to structurally conceive of an alternative, um, I know that's something that my brain has been working on, but I know yours has too. So, yeah, I, I'd love that. 
I'd say to maybe uh, bookmark it for the final part that like alternative future requires a rewriting of the foundational values that we currently operate off of. Um, in terms of the work that Siji has been doing with our green hospital program, I think in similar ways, we started with a core set of values, right? The first value being that anyone who needs medical access and care deserves that care, right? Whether or not you can afford to pay for it is not, should not be the driving question to if you can access care. So our, our hospitals within uh, Taiwan all operate off of the pay what you can models where those who come from privilege and have the capacity to pay for treatment are uh, being billed for their care. Whereas those who do not have access to these funds, particularly communities that are oftentimes marginalized and uh, left behind are um, being able to provide this uh, care that they need for free, right? And as we were providing and creating this hospital design system in 1986, we realized that a lot of our um, long-term uh, non-communicable disease problems stemmed from our diets and that uh, these communities that um, were adopting Western diets and um, aspiring towards this like more meat on my plate uh, equals a, a more uh, wealthy and uh, societally approved understanding of uh, social progress were um, contracting more non-communicable diseases. And so when they were coming into the hospital, we were realizing that um, we needed to not only treat their uh, disease itself, but tackle the root problems, right? And I think the way Tsuji approaches all of its work across the 17 Sustainable Development Goals has been trying to tackle these root problems, right? And so within our green hospital systems, we started by first designing out a framework of how do we feed our patients, right? And so we feed all of our patients through a plant-based diet, um, so long as it is um, able to like address their needs. Right. For those who have specific dietary restrictions, of course, the food that they require is provided for them. But we find that for all the majority of our patients, they really not only are able to uh, adapt to a plant-based diet, but that it provides better health outcomes for them as they're coming into our hospital for treatment. Now, just providing food alone without educational structures and engagement opportunities is not enough. Right. It needs to be a full and holistic system. So our green hospitals also provide um, gardening therapy where our patients not only are able to um, better understand their relationship with food and care for these plants that are in the hospital that grows its own food that is then served to the patients, but that this act of gardening is a form of bodily rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. right? From there, we also are able to not only create these plant-based uh, offerings for the patients themselves, but we have um, an entire like food system within our hospital for the uh, guests and visitors and family members of the patients that are also plant-based. We have uh, one of the first plant-based star uh, Starbucks in the world um, within our hospital. Oh, no so way. That's awesome. We, <laughs> we have this requirement. If you want to do business here, it has to be plant-based. Um, and so not only do we um, want to create these systems where um, the family members are then introduced to healthier and better ways of eating that are not just plant-based, but delicious, right? One of the uh, most common arguments that we find within um, communities that we advocate for a transition towards a plant-based diet, they say, like, why do I just want to eat green leaves? Like, 
that's disgusting, right? Like there's no flavor, like it's just like bland, but you're like, well, if you like just boil meat alone without adding any spices, if you don't know how to cook your food, it's going to be bland too, right? Mm. And so we have to also then within the screen hospital structure, offer community classes that teach people how to better prepare their food in a way that is delicious, nutritious, and rich in the culture that they come from, right? If we take away something without providing a better alternative, then there's no way that a change that we introduce within the hospital system will stick. And so it's through these different modalities that a hospital as not only a care system, but a deliverer of culture and change can offer that is creating this sort of large um, green hospital system. And so we have these hospital structures within Taiwan, but we also have uh, offices that our medical foundations operate in, in over 60 countries that offer free clinics, whether those are like clinics that communities can come to like specific locations on a weekly, monthly basis to receive free medical care from professionals that are volunteering and donating their time, all the way out to structures and spaces where we have visiting doctors who go to indigenous communities that are a little more remote, that may not necessarily have access to hospitals to provide care directly to them. And in all these places, we are providing and advocating for a transformation of food systems while um, accompanying that with the education, resources, culture, and care that is needed to really see the transformation happening and to adopt that um, as individuals and communities in a willing way out of their own volition and desire to live healthier lives. Wow. Yeah. Uh, mic drop, mic drop from Steve. <laughs> I, it's, it's, I know one of your big things is holistic approaches to problem solving and, you know, the green hospital is an amazing representation of that, where it, it seems like at, a, at the face value, it's going to be about patient care, but it, it's also looping in, um, education, <laughs> um, mm challenging food systems and how it's structured. Um, also this concept of community care, which is, you know, so one of the other members of the BRIM global working group, Marla Louison from, from New York, um, she's taught me a lot about sort of the Black Panthers models around their, their free health clinics that were across the U.S. Um, back in the 60s. But then they also had you know, free health clinics, they had, you know, school lunch programs that were actually supporting on the food side. Um, so a lot of these sort of bottom up community care models seem to be really fantastic examples. And while they're in some ways on the smaller side in terms of their scale, they're easily replicable. Right. I mean, right. you said you're doing this work now in, with, in 60 different countries. You know, one example, even if it might be in one green hospital in Taiwan, can also be a lesson that can be transplanted in different ways um, based on how a community or a different culture might want to take that and translate it into their own manifestation. So very, very cool to learn about. Um there are, there are a couple of books that I'll I'll link into this because I think from a sort of a conceptual framework about inventing the future, I know that's like super overwhelming to me when, <laughs> when I'm thinking about it at a, at, a, at a high level, but 
Um, there's one sociologist called named Eric Olin Wright, who sort of built the concept of eroding capitalism, which mm. is all about creating pockets of space within the larger system that over time start to erode at the structure, the base of it. Mm. And that to me was a really helpful kind of framing of the process of challenging a system because you know, capitalism's not going away overnight, um, but there are ways to to create pockets of space that, especially if they start to connect with each other, can form some some really interesting um, you know, structures of alternatives. So, anyway, there's a lot to dig into there, but <laughs> the Green Hospital is a great example. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, and this is sort of in the theme of, of our work that we've been doing together too, but the concept of art, um, you know, for the people who don't know you well yet, um, you know, you have an amazing ability to, to think creatively and artistically as well about your forms of activism, about your forms of communication styles, um, I love to hear a little bit of your thoughts around what sort of the the meaning of art is to you, especially with <laughs> yeah. And then also on a less like intense level, <laughs> you should definitely share a little bit about your Zine and your Substack with people because it's definitely been something I look forward to every month. So um, I'll let you oh. take that where you'd like to take it. That's really sweet. Thanks, Tia. Um, meaning of art. I mean, I think there's there's such a fun conversation here about like what how do we model the future we want to see, right? Like it, inventing the future uh feels very grand and that feels very much like the architect of the future we wish to create is like that's such a heavy burden, right? But if we scale totally. back down to like ourselves as individuals to ask the question of like, how do we model something better becomes a lot more playful of a question that I, I really enjoy entertaining. And so for me, I think art is the mechanism that allows for me to connect to the natural world, to my own internal world, my feelings, my lived experiences and gives and holds space for me to reflect um, in a thoughtful way about everything that is happening, right? It's this companion that accompanies me as I live my life, do my work, and um, work through the activism that we work through, right? And I think within that framework, um, art offers an alternative way of being where the values that I have within my creative practice are foundational in process, they're rooted in joy and playfulness, they're about experimentation and creativity, connecting with others and being engrossed in the idea of having the experience of making as opposed to being obsessed about production, the amount of material that we're creating, how uh, profitable can it be? And I think I'm very blessed to be able to have this creative practice as a way to say that there is an alternative way to exist outside of this capitalist structure. And so to that end, I think art within the climate space 
is also a similar um, tool that I've been very grateful to have where like, because for me, I see nature as both this creator and destroyer. There's a lot of grief that I carry within my own heart that like I need to process, right? When I come to spaces like COP27 and I see the possibility and it does not uh, match up to my expectations as an outcome, I have a lot of sorrow that um, I have to face on an individual level and on a community level, right? And as someone who defaults into this healer mindset where I want to care for the people that I work with, I want to hold space for them to grieve with me. If I don't have a toolbox, if I don't have a toolkit that says um, we have this space to play, to express our sorrows, to grieve together, um, and it disrupts maybe our ordinary way of thinking, um, it can be very hard to do the work that I think needs to be done. And so for me, art is this toolbox. It's this mechanism that allows for us to peer into our sorrow, into our grief, and say, how do we express this in a way that I can materialize this immaterial feeling and then look at it and say, I acknowledge you and I can now take active steps to reconciling my relationship with this sorrow. And from that end, I think those of us who work within the climate space all need a way to process, to reflect and grieve. And I highly recommend art making as one of those ways to do so. And so to that end, um, every month I put out a um, zine. It's a collection of drawings, words, and ideas that emerge from my studio. I see it as like an alternative um, mechanism to like social media and posting daily. I think the structures of social media encourage us to have mass consumption in a very fragmented way where context is eroded and you're just bombarded and overwhelmed with noise and ideas that may seem disparate, even if you try to curate them, right? Because you're just like seeing this collection and uh, wave of things that you're constantly bombarded with. And it like, it leads you and tends uh, to bring us towards doom scrolling, excessive consumption, and a dissociation from reality itself, right? And so for me, I don't want my um, creative practice to contribute into a system that incentivizes this and rather I want it to be a more intentional offering, right? So every month I publish this um, zine on Substack where um, these ideas, these thoughts, questions that I'm having, realizations that have uh, emerged over the past month and the learnings that I've had by simply living life and the drawings that have come forth from there are put together in a curated way for you to kind of reflect on. Right. So uh, this month's zine that's coming out uh, tomorrow has like Ooh. over 60 images, right, that are just like um, things that I drew while I was at COP27, um, writings that I had um, while I was like contemplating my very existence of like, why am I here at this climate conference doing <laughs> the work that I'm doing? Like, yeah. was me flying here worth it at all? Like, what is the point of life as it is? And so like to have these offerings to you to kind of reflect alongside with me and hopefully they um, bring a sort of intentionality and infuse creativity into your life in a way that inspires you to also um, look into how creativity, playfulness, joy is showing up as a process within your own life as well. So cool. 
I just realized I've been calling it a zine. And you haven't corrected me. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. You know, it's like the gif and gif thing. Like, everyone in their mothers has a different way of saying it. Like, I think uh, it's fine. So well, I, uh, we'll make sure to, to link as well to, to Steve's zine. And we're recording this on November 30th. And it'll come. This will this interview will come out tomorrow on the 1st, as well as his next post. So yeah. uh, we'll definitely get those pushed out together it'll be fun um and yeah you've been so generous with your time today so i i have just sort of one very general kind of open-ended question to um to leave everybody with but i'm curious how how you see and um once again this is kind of meta so take it how you will but um coming out of cop heading into a new year sort of this concept of rejuvenation and rebirth um how do you see the the future unfolding um heading into cop 28 and in this period that's supposed to be one of uh not only hope and commitments but also implementation um where do you see signs of hope emerging and um i guess to that note as well how can others start to engage with you and your work and um I'd love if you have any last words to to share. Um, love to invite you to to drop some knowledge. Yeah, I think on the international community level, on December seventh, COP fifteen with the Convention on Biological Diversity is happening, where they're finalizing their post twenty twenty framework um, on biodiversity. So I think there's there's more work to be done, right? And that in turn will lead into um, some of the other work that's happening around like marine pollution and like uh, this triple planetary crisis that we see there's going to be COP28 in UAE next year like within the UN circuit of conferences there will always be something else that is happening right and how you wish to engage with that these systems and structures I think is a question that is up to each individual uh, organization and each individual actor within said organization, right? Recognizing that we all have our own unique talents, skills, and strengths. I think it's important to see past um, the shiny veneer that um, a lot of these international moments may have and really ask ourselves, like, where are we most effective? What is most impactful for me as an individual? And how do I um, really, like, help shape the future that I want to see, right? For some of us, it means because we have good relationships at an international level that we should continue to push forward, right? To be in these spaces and utilize our connections, networks, and influence to continue to push negotiators and country representatives to uh, uphold the values that we really believe humanity should be moving towards, right? For others who wish to learn more about the space, entering the space is very enlightening right? Um, to be able to go to these large scale international conferences and begin to build your network might be the way you want to kind of dive into the space, right? But for others like who have strong community connections at a local level, that might not necessarily be the most efficient use of your time, right? Like what good would it do for you if you're a local organizer in Bangladesh who has like connections to local government 
to take away time from the very important work that you're doing right here and right now in the local community to meet like some arbitrary groups um, that are doing work in like way off in like Canada, right? Yeah. Like sure, there might be some learnings that you could have, but maybe the better use of your time is to like strengthen and deepen the work that you're doing at a local level to continue to push forward, right? But there's like, there really is a seductiveness to these international spaces that I think it's important to remind ourselves is just an illusion, right? And to really like do deep introspection into like where is most impactful for you and how can your voice be most meaningful, right? If you feel like you have good models at a local level that aren't being replicated at other places though, coming to an international space to share is a really powerful way to be. Right. So there's there's like so many considerations uh, as we enter a new year that I think first and foremost, uh, with rebirth comes reflection. Right. So look back on the work that we've done to say, is this work meaningful? Is it impactful? And can I be of more use elsewhere? Right. And if I don't know how to move forward in a space that feels unfamiliar and foreign, who can be there to help chart the path forward for me? Right. Are those are there those within my own circles that can play the role of mentors who have experience in these unfamiliar spaces that can help me weigh in to say, would I be effective in this space or is there somewhere else that I could be more impactful? Right. If I'm doing local work and um, but my voice could be very powerful in a national platform. Right. Like, who do I know that can introduce me into some of these spaces that they can allow for me to create deeper impact? Right. If I feel time impoverished at this moment and I'm over already overwhelmed, who can I bring into my community that can help me do some of the work that I'm already doing? Right. So with a year of rebirth, reflection, but then also deeper community building, no matter where and what level we're operating on. Right. Disasters will continue. Um, this work is ever present and there will be new opportunities, new suffering that emerges and new pain points. But if we're able to strengthen the very communities that we work off of and work with, I think we have a brighter future ahead for all of us. Awesome. Well, it's been it's been an absolute joy to be able to work with you a little bit this past year. <laughs> um you know, the, the BRIM community has been a really exciting sort of example, I think, of a, a lot of what you're what you're talking about and having a chance to get together at COP27 with you and, and Kavindu was awesome. Mm. Um, and I'm excited for, for what the next year holds and just very grateful for, for the time you've spent so far um, sharing your story. And there will be much more fun had. <laughs> uh, some good work as well. So thank you, Steve, for, for taking the time. And um, super excited for everyone to get to know you better and um, for the work we'll do. Yeah, I'm so grateful for this conversation. I think hope is found in taking action and dialogue itself is also an action. You know, so I'm really happy that we've been able to have this conversation, surface ideas new and old, and really build towards the better future that we want to live in. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.